Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. I am your host, Desmond Price. And for today's episode, I am joined by Terrence LaFromboise. He is coming onto the podcast today to talk about his brother, Brandon Galbreath. Uh, some of you in the community, if you're listening here in the local Missoula area, might know his story. He uh, tragically died uh, on August 12th after an altercation with the Missoula Police Department. And Terrence has come onto the podcast today to talk about that incident, talk about who his brother, you know, was, and kind of just tell us a little bit more about where the current case is and where it's going forward from here. So with all that being said, Terrence, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on today. Hey, I'm just super grateful to be here and just want to thank you for the acknowledgement and being able to continue to tell Brendan's story in a good way. So that way we continue to acknowledge, I think a space that needs to be healed or a space that needs to have change. So just super grateful and hello everybody. Yeah, thank, thank you again. I, I can't imagine you know, what, it's, what it must be like to kind of relive this. So I appreciate you, to, you coming on here and taking the time to talk to us about all of this. But I think first and foremost, one of the things that when we first initially met that you wanted to stress was that a lot of people don't really know who Brendan was. And so I wanted to start off this conversation by more or less uh, painting the broader picture about who your brother was as a person, because um, I think that's an important detail to put out into, into the story. So can you just talk to me a little bit about who your brother was like as a person, like, like where did you guys grow up? What was, what was his early childhood like? Yeah, you know, and as we talked about this question, I, I think it's very, it's very important to remember that's the whole reason why we wanted to shine a better story on Brendan was to recognize that the media at one point was pushing this narrative, the narrative that's usually pushed, I think, during times like this and to be able to go back and do a story because at the time of remembering this question it was it was so unique to me that I couldn't really explain it but the more I look back on it you know who my brother was started from the moment he was born um, and it kind of started back prior to that with my mom and his dad you know generationally Native Americans are impacted by our families and my brother is no different so his story and who he was don't just start with him, but it starts with the generational things I think that occurs and, and that happens within our reservations. So in this process, uh, my, my brother was born to uh, my mother who was at um, Sippy in New Mexico. And at the time I was already 10 years old and the process of it, was just crazy because I was my mom's only boy. I was content with that title. And I remember when she told me that I was going to be a big brother. And then that moment I knew my 
kind of path. And I think when my, my brother was born, this full of light, really big smile, full head of hair, all black even, um, kind of starts with that acknowledgement of each and every one of us kind of have a path after loved ones are, you know, either born or passed. So when, when Brendan was born, being such a big pivotal moment in my mom's life, my life, his dad's life, he created a lot of good things for our family and his spirit shined, you know, since he was, since he was little. And it was that shining that created that really amazing space that he filled. And that's kind of who he was. He was always filling space. He was consistently uh, an, an ear for somebody, our, our wisdom for another, our jokes for somebody else. He was an all-around empathetic person to his friends, his family. Ever since he was just a tiny little baby, you could feel his presence. Um, and I had posted some pictures during this time of me holding him. And there was a lot of power in that. He held this light. I, I just continue to say that within him. That was so powerful. And that's kind of where it continued to shine throughout his life. And like any family that struggles, you know, there was a lot of struggles. That, those create our experiences. So my brother and myself and our family, we have a lot of lived and learned experiences. And in those experiences, they create differences within us and you know being 10 years apart my upbringing was way different than my brother's but th there was still there was still um a lot that continued to I guess hinder the process of you know growing up in a healthy home there was a lot of things that we either witnessed or were part of at a, at a younger age and we carried it and my brother carried his in a different way than I carried mine and that's kind of that strength, that, that continuance of filling space that he had. Because anyone that we had talked to during this time and prior knowing his friends, but really when, when he had passed, there were so many people that came forward from all the places that he had been. And in those places that he had been, um, carried a deep impact so he created spaces like that yeah and you know I, I think one of the things I also wanted to to ask you about was you know you were saying that you know Brendan eventually when he went to college you know he went off to UCLA to go to school for pre-med but kind of like before he ever got to that point you were saying in seventh grade he actually got involved in a, in a medicine program could you tell me a little bit more about that maybe like how you know, what your mom does for a living kind of played into that. Yeah. So like, like I said, our experiences really build our paths and our mother who has been a nurse um, and was going to school for nursing when my brother was in her belly um, kind of set the pathway for a lot of us to go into the industry of, of, of caring for others. And that kind of led him on his path because he had other family members that were nurses, doctors, administrators within healthcare settings. So he went into this program into seventh grade, him and his friends called InMed, which is Indians into medicine. And at that program, 
it creates pathways for indigenous kids throughout the United States to come and one, learn prerequisites and learn courses on medicine and different pathways into healthcare. And then also learning holistic, clinical and different types of things while also gaining high school credit and gaining college credit. So he was already ahead of the game and he went there seventh grade, eighth grade, uh, freshman year. He did skip a year and then he went junior and his senior year. Uh, and there, it might be one or two of those years that might be misplaced, but from seventh grade, he went all the way up to his senior year and only missing one. So he really, he really was really into um, healthcare. He was wanting to create a, a difference and he got into UCLA for pre-med um, and he was looking to go down that route of medicine one, to create a difference within Indian country, primarily our reservation. So he had a big heart that was always looking to um, help others. And I think that's where, um, that's where he shined the brightest. So yeah, you were also saying that when we spoke before that you know, he was also involved in other groups when he was in high school, including like an activist group where he actually was able to go to Washington DC and meet Michelle Obama. Yeah, he was always invested in extracurricular activities. He did track, he ran cross country. He was also student body president, or vice president, I should say. Um, he graduated eventually uh, second in his class and he shared that with three other of his friends. Um, so it was really cool to know that at one point in his high school career, all his efforts that he was doing, him and um, this group, it was a gear up group and it was like a young activist group where they did and acknowledged different things, not only within the community, but the macro, you know, everything that was going on in the world. So uh, they had this exchange program with this school in Washington, DC. So he was very fortunate to be a part of that program and go visit this, uh, Quaker school that was in the middle of Washington, D.C., and it was a nonprofit school that where Michelle Obama's daughter was going, and it just so happened that week Michelle Obama was doing um, a speech to the school. So in that process, Brendan and his friends got to tell their story to Michelle Obama. So they got to meet her, they got to tell their stories, and each one of those stories um, touched Michelle and she wrote them back uh, later on that year, reminding them how powerful their story was. So it was really cool that he got to experience a lot of his own hard work that he was putting in and that he got to have those types of experiences, getting to meet influential people and to be influential himself with, within his peers, within his class and within his community. Right. And I think, you know, as we were having that discussion originally, you were saying that it was during that time that you felt like he was really kind of like finding his own and, you know, learning to become a more of a leader. And you were saying that, you know, during those times, you even found yourself, um, you know, maybe starting to go to him for advice, even though that you were, you know, his older brother, and that he continued to change and develop as he went to UCLA, where you said that that was 
you know, a pivotal like place of growth for him, you know, like what kind of effect did going to UCLA have on your brother and, you know, how did that change him as a person? Yeah, I think to answer that first question, it was, it was really cool to see that pivotal moment from those experiences in high school that gave him that, that, um, that sense of who he was, because you could start to see that his spirit was always so big and who he was and it just couldn't fit in our small town, but he, he made it do. And he went on through these processes and you could see him gaining his voice. You could see him gaining that leadership and he was already so smart. He already had the ability to critical think and to get through the most difficult AP classes I could think of. And it was getting into college, you could see his growth really get bigger um, in terms of who he was, being able to express himself. And by expressing himself, it was who he was as being a part of the LGBTQ community where he started to really connect with that sense of Brendan Galbraith. And he was still exploring that. You know, aren't we all exploring that as who we are as young uh, Americans, you know, who we are as young people and not just put that experience within one subgroup, but to know that we all have this growing and we go through stages. And I know my brother was like that. He was this beautiful butterfly that you could see through his whole life. He was going through these stages like we all do, but his obviously had bigger purposes. And I think that's why we're, we're, we're telling his story today is because there's this understanding that he, he connected to so much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the next thing I want to talk about here is that unfortunately he wasn't able to stay at UCLA, which, you know, during, you know, uh, the start of the pandemic, you know, I seemed like he had to come back here to Montana and then I guess once he was here, you were saying that your grandmother uh, passed away as well, which was ended up being one of the reasons why he decided to stay in Montana. Um, what, what were some of the other, I guess, like conversations that were going on around that about why he did not want to go back to UCLA, why he ended up staying here? Yeah, well, Brendan, personally, he wanted to go back. He wanted to be back to where he felt that sense of normalcy that he created for himself, that voice that he was finding. He wanted to go back to um, UCLA, but because of grief and how it impacts just people in general, that's 10 times more within indigenous families, uh, especially deaths like that. And the COVID death is, is, is a different experience. Um, and to, to be in that experience, it's, it's been a hard process for us as a family. So losing my mom, losing her mom, and she really raised my brother, Brendan, was what is, and I think that was another big impact was she raised my brother, Brendan, where I was raised by my great grandfather. Um, so you could see similarities and generational patterns, and you could see where my brother was just affected. Um, and as we all were. And my mother kind of influenced more so for him to stay closer because it was scary. 
just losing someone so close and then just feeling the impact of maybe possibly losing somebody and being so far away. And ironically, we have felt that through this process, but that's what created that space for him to stay. And it was a decision that, you know, I think we all, I, I made sure that he knew, you know, what he was getting himself into. And he knew he was a very smart person. He was in the process of change and he could deal with change. But at the same time, you know, we all struggle with that. What's next? What, what are we going to do? What's, what's, what's forward? And I know he was very hopeful in, in many things. Um, and that's where that him staying may kind of like, he didn't want to be back home. He wanted to go um, and be with friends, to be away from Browning, one, because again, that his voice that he found, he couldn't, he couldn't be that. He couldn't do that here. He couldn't be who he was. He couldn't say the things he could say based off of just the paradigm of what it is to, to live on reservation. And when, we, when you take that look, he was more comfortable living in Missoula. Missoula was a space for him where he was wanting to, to grow and to, to set a new path for himself. And he was doing that. He got, um, he got a job there. He was you, you doing some seasonal work. Um, but before he even gets to Missoula, he, um, he was in that process of getting ready to head back to UCLA, right? And it was just him being guided by all of us. You know, what should we do? How should we go about this? So he and our family decided for him it'd be better for him to stay. So in that process of him staying, moved to Missoula, was getting spot jobs. He was working a lot of, because um, I was going into the fall, there was a lot of positions open for like, what do they call them? Like winter workers. Just that, like Rosses, yeah, seasonal workers like yeah. Rosses, all these, you know, Walmart. So he was getting, you know, he had no no trouble getting a job. I don't think he was fulfilled until he got into AT and T and he was working customer service. And while working at AT I think it enticed him to switch his major into engineering. He was looking to possibly, and he always had that whether he was going to be a doctor. Um, he was wanting to go into some kind of engineering, uh, primarily like computer programming or possibly like audio engineering. Um, I know he was very technical and he was very savvy with, with technology. And he was very book smart, but he was also very smart with a lot of uh, devices. And he could do a lot of things like programming. So it was cool to see him set his path. That was all him. So that's what he was doing, was doing, got into AT&T, then kind of prior to him passing, because he spent that whole, um, that, that, that whole kind of rest of 2020, uh, would it be the end of the year in Missoula, and then the beginning of 2021 is where he kind of um, got into his own at AT&T, and then he went into uh, looking to get back into college this fall which uh, he was applying for different areas, the University of Montana. He was applying for the Salish and Kootenai College. So there was a lot of hope. He was, he was continuing to strive to get back into a sense of normalcy after so much grief. And for him to do that all on his own, 
um, was was commendable. And that's why going back to the other question was, that's why I always looked up to him. Even though, even though I was older, the way he carried himself, his work ethic, what reminded me of our grandfather. And it was unique to, for me. And I think other people might feel different, but you know, that's how you create strong leaders is you, you give them encouragement and you praise them. And my brother deserved all that because he was an amazing leader. And I made, I made sure he knew that. I made sure he consistently understood the way I looked at him was I want to ask him for advice. I want to be guided by his wisdom. And while at the same time, having reciprocity, um, giving each other different understandings and teachings, which he given me, just him being who he was, gave me a different perspective of male masculinity. And it gave me a different perspective of how to approach uh, different people other than myself different groups, uh, different racial, ethnic backgrounds, because he's gotten to experience things I never, and, and same with me. So it was always this relationship that we had. And he had that with so many people, my mother, his friends, his teachers, people he met at InMed all those years. And just recently at UCLA, the outpouring of support since this has happened from these all across the country, um, different areas, people invested in, you know, what happened? You know, this, this, isn't, this isn't right. What's going on? So just, just knowing that, that that impact that he had could share some understanding that he had an ability to create very loving, safe spaces for many people. He had a light that shined so bright with his love and connection to everybody. So. Thank you for taking the time to, you know, tell us a little bit more about who your brother, you know, was as a person, a little bit more about his story. We're going to take a quick break in this episode, but when we come back, we're going to kind of get it a little bit more into what happened with the encounter with the police and where we can go from here. We'll be right back. Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. 
Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So before we went on the break, we were talking about who Brendan was as a person, some of his upbringing, some of the different things that happened in his life that led him to being the person who he was. But now I want to talk to you about what ultimately ended up happening uh, that night in August. So from the details that I have here, uh, you were saying that Brendan was involved in a slow speed chase and that there was a traffic stop. And then he ultimately got into a wreck at the corner of Beckwith and Stevens. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what exactly happened that night? Yeah. You know, for being a telling this story and going through the processes, I've noticed since the beginning, my story has not changed once. And that's kind of where I always like to start is to recognize that since the beginning, there's been so much misinformation throughout the whole process. It's, it's very scary and, and very concerning. And one thing that was alarming was the initial, okay, the response, how we were notified. Yeah, very horrifying to, to be notified um, that, you know, your brother possibly um, killed himself. And when we got that information, um, for me, and I can only speak from my experience, and I can talk a little bit about my mom and, and my brother's dad, Mark. And in that process, I, I, I was known, uh, my mom's uh, boyfriend came up to the house, knocked on the door, was pounded. And since that, that I woke up, I, I remember going through the door and he said, your brother uh, was involved in this. We don't know what's going on. We're being told he was, uh, he was a slow speed chase through, through Missoula and then killed himself. Like what? So I called the police department right away. And the, the sheriff's office was closed because I know the sheriff's office does the coroner's report. So I was going to call the sheriff's office. And then I get to dispatch and then dispatch sends me to uh, they said, give me your information and we'll have someone call you back. Uh, within 10 minutes or so, had to have been around 5.40, 5.45 in the morning. Um, this officer who identified himself as an officer Gore had told me that my brother died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And I just broke down, I started crying. Then I started asking questions about the particular event, just in tears asking him, well, you know, what, what, how did it, what happened? Why was he involved? Cause then he started explaining that uh, he was shooting his gun at police officers and that he was involved in a chase through Missoula and pedestrians were 
um, in trouble. And that was very alarming. It was just like, what? It was just caught me way off guard. And I'm like, that, that don't even sound like it. Well, it was your brother, I'm telling you. And I said, uh, oh man. And I'm like, can you tell me the gun he had? Oh, well, uh, we can't give that information. It's under investigation. And I said, well, can you, um, do you think we could find out who the gun is registered to? That way, you know, if it was a friend that maybe gave him a gun or if he bought it, we would know uh, for, for our understandings, for our clarification. Because to be involved with, uh, and see, we weren't told anything about the officer shooting anything yet. So in that time, uh, he had mentioned that they were still trying to identify Brendan early in that morning. And I said, well, his dad and my mother are on their way to Missoula right now. And uh, they were told by the nurse ICU, nurse in the ICU, they were asking who he was and they were needing to come identify him. So they were making their way over. Well, at the same time, I'm talking to this officer and it just felt very rude, his, his stern judgment on somebody who has uh, committed suicide and, and not taking into consideration a crisis. And I was asking those specific questions of how and why and what he knew and what he could tell me as a family member um, to the deceased. And it was, it was just, it was a very weird conversation. I told him I'd be over. He, he gave me his information, allowed me to call him. So when I get across the mountains, that's the first report. And it's from the couple different local um, papers, Missoulian, Great Falls Tribune, uh, Flathead. They all reported that an officer involved shooting um, young man killed by police officer. Those are the first reports we got from them. And those come directly from the police department's media department. So they're the ones that send that information out into the public. And from there, once I get across, I call him and say, what's going on? Why, why is the report saying he was involved in a, a police shot him and you were telling me he killed him? It doesn't make sense. And I'm very erratic. I'm very just like breathing heavily and just about ready to cry. And he just says and explains to me, I told you what I told you. And I can't tell you anything else because you're not listening to me or you don't want to listen. And I, I asked him, I said, do you treat other people like this? Just in general, why am I being treated like this? And his, his short, rude behavior really was hurtful especially during that time then for them for my uh my brother's father and then my mom to get to the hospital and them not them not have uh the body there the body's already taken uh to the crime lab um they at that point talked to two sheriffs who were part of the coroner's report and they tell them specifically they're sorry for your uh brother's passing um and within the investigation, we'll find out if your brother has been shot. So hearing those from different people within uh, the sheriff's department, not the Missoula Police Department, just raised a lot of um, attention for us, especially because we are very detail-oriented. Uh, my mother, who works for uh, Indian Health Service, does investigation reports 
within the health service. So we understood and we were asking as much keen questions as we could throughout this process while still trying to figure out why. No information was given to us whatsoever besides the idea that he killed himself, which, okay, we understood that that as a possibility because my brother, again, has had issues and don't we all with different mental health concerns, anxiety, depression, and it's just, it wasn't indicative of, of what they were saying he was doing, which caused those alarms to come up. And it was like, when we asked questions, it's, they didn't either expect us to ask questions or they were just, didn't know. And a lot of that I felt was in between where there were specific things that they had mentioned, especially the first initial statements from the police being that it was a high-speed chase through Missoula, that they did a pit maneuver, and that uh, he fired at the police and he fired back. And then the second statement was that they fired at the same time. Well, the final statement is that with DCI. And that was back in August 20th, um, or, or, or like shortly after. So we're already up to a month where they have not communicated with us since then because a week after around august 20th we got to come in and that's something i think we're going to probably discuss was um what you know what we got to do especially continue to ask questions continue to uh get information that we thought was you know vital to the family you know nothing was provided in terms of family support um wanting to ask specific questions on how did it escalate so so quickly to him running and it was like they were taking away a lot of who Brendan was by saying these things that's why it was very important at the time to get who he was out there um because they were painting this narrative of him being a negligent human being which that's not who he was so for him to be in a crisis uh, it, it goes back and repaints, did they follow protocol? And that's where we were looking at. And we had to figure out where this all occurred. You can go to the Missoula scanner and it, you can buy it for $15. And you can go on there and go to that day at 1230. It starts the process of what happened. And then it goes into him pulling him over, stating a different car, not even giving the right description of the vehicle then going into details of, of, of scene by scene, street by street, until they get up to Stevens and Beckwith and Florence, uh, right by Orange, that it comes to that horrifying point where he takes his life. And that's where, where we're trying to figure out what happened because what they're telling us is there was only one bullet fired and they have the bullet from the police gun, but they won't divulge any information about the gun that my brother had and the bullet and where that bullet is and why that bullet hasn't been found and won't show any police tapes from the vehicle. And the last time we had, had acknowledgement from them, they showed my family members, my mother and his father and his auntie and then our lawyer at the time showed them still photos of the incident 
and they wouldn't even allow them to hold the pictures. They would just point and say, see, see, here's him holding the gun. Here's him pulling the trigger. And in the photos, you can so clearly see that you can't see anything. You can see a clear picture of Brendan, like you can see him on my shirt or the background behind me. But what you couldn't see was anything around him. It was all pixelated. It really looks like a huge cell phone, which he had a Samsung Galaxy. So it's just too, too much. And there's a lot of information that I think I've explained to you that I can't divulge, especially with the ongoing investigation from our end that we have eyewitnesses. And I actually posted one on Facebook. So it was just the idea that they only, a lot of people only heard one gunshot. And see this, all this information is something that we as a family have had to do ourselves. And now with the help of our lawyers, we're just kind of given that space where we need to not uh, share a lot of information, but I think it's important to know that there was only one gunshot that was heard that night. And by police records, DCI, there is only one bullet that was found. And the information and the setup of everything and everything that they showed us is all off. So it's just, it's basically our word as a family who got to see these images to an organization that we put our trust in, that we look at as, as a system of care, an organization that's meant to keep the peace. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I missed some things or if there's some things I left out, but from the beginning, the different narratives to, to not being acknowledged, to not having any formal communication and to just be blatantly lied to. And where I say that, and I think I left that out was one of the witnesses had mentioned the lack of getting to the body and getting him if he was possibly, which the timeline is a huge issue for us as a family and we want answers is, is what took so long for uh, them to acknowledge us as his family and for them to call his contacts to not knowing who he was, but to know that they had his information. So that was one of the key things that I think they failed to look at was knowing that they said they didn't have his information to them telling us they had his information, but yet still neglected to call us as a family. Cause it would, it would bring up a lot of medical records or even the insurance that was under uh, my mother's name in the car, which we still have not gotten to see. We don't know where his vehicle is at. Um, and they continue to say investigation while at the same time, letting us know that nothing was in due part. And I, we still haven't had any clear communication since then. And I know we have reached out. Uh, my mother is in Missoula and continues to uh, speak with advocates and lawyers. And yeah, that's kind of like what is happening in this moment right now. So let me try to summarize this a little bit. So you were saying that you were originally told that from an officer Gore, that this was an attempted or that this was a suicide. And then you later found out 
that it wasn't actually a suicide, that it was reported that a police officer actually did in fact kill your brother. And on top of all of that, the officer then that you reached out to again, uh, just, re just reaffirmed his original story saying that again, it was in fact a suicide. So you were told that, and then you were told that, you know, your brother fired at the police officers first, and then they were, they fired back. And then now you're hearing that there was actually only one gunshot. They only found one bullet from what it sounds like to me is that there is an incredible amount of inconsistencies here. And all you're really looking for is the truth. Have the police acknowledged any of these inconsistencies whatsoever? They have not. And we have reached out to them time and time again, not only us as a family, but the organizations that are supporting uh, justice for Brendan Galbraith. These organizations are galvanizing and they're asking questions. They've reached out to Mayor Ed Egan, Edgen. Um, they reached out to the mayor and they've reached out to these different uh, political entities and have asked for that transparency. And it just continues to go back to, we can't. It's, so we're not afforded that. And that's scary. That's scary when, whether it's one family has the opportunity to get information where another family doesn't, you know, we're rooted in a really systemic time period where there's a lot occurring and whether it's racially motivated or there is a lot of profiling occurring here where we're not allowed these things, it raises those questions. Why aren't we afforded information as a family to go forward and heal, to get the information that they supposedly have and will not share just key parts to it. And they'll continue to paint the narrative while at the same time not acknowledging the misinformation that was given at the first place. That's the scary part. And that's the sad part. That's the part that hurts the most is that we're not, we're not even given yeah, we messed up. Okay, here's where we're at. It was just like, we didn't say that. We have you recorded. We have it all, all here. It's out there for public. And at the same time, that's what was most hurtful was them communicating with us or their lack of, and then, then communicating to the public about all this stuff. And that's the last report you had mentioned to clarify was DCI which came from the Department of Investigations, which is under DOJ. And they're the ones that do the investigations, almost like an internal affairs, where they, they look at those um, incidents that involve an officer shooting a handgun. And that's where that report came from, that they shot at the same time, which could give the perception that there was only one gunshot. But that's, that's neither, that's, that's, that's the hard part is what's, what's afforded to us. And I think what could clear a lot of this up because as hurt people, we, we put our own narratives into our grief and trauma. We try to paint a picture that isn't given to us clearly. And we try to fill in the spaces that are more so blank. And we fill them in with only our lived and learned experiences which sometimes are more traumatic. So if we could be given an opportunity to just be spoken to 
with dignity, with truth. And then for them to be transparent in their policy and their behavior as an organization. And for them to give information to maybe the deceased family members and not just about my brother, but many others like him that aren't afforded that information to what happened. Because that's all we want on our end is to know the truth. And I think that's what we've been fighting for is that transparency. And we as a family, like you had mentioned from the beginning, have never wanted to put unjust blame. And through this whole process, I haven't put blame on anyone. I'm only given our points of facts, our family's connection to everything that we have found. And that's where where we we stood from the beginning is we're not looking to put unjust blame on anything. We're wanting for the Missoula Police Department to give full transparency, to give honest, open dialogue, to ask, to have us ask the questions, why, if you guys just celebrated this crisis intervention team that you created, why wasn't that implemented during a crisis? Why do you keep continuing to put the narrative that this young man was only three years in. It's very hurtful for the family and it's very not trauma informed. I'm not looking for the organization to uh, make everything better for my ears, but for as a general public, they need to be more inclined to be perceptive to the hurting families that they're involved with and not just give some blanketed statement like, oh, we want to give acknowledgement to the deceased family, to the deceased member's family. It was a very cringy interview that he did, uh, Mr. White, where he acknowledged that the officer fired his weapon, but he had a hard time getting to that point and was very heartfelt to give acknowledgement to um, my brother. And we as a family continue to pray for the officers involved. We continue to pray for everyone involved. It's just a horrifying experience. And that's what we want to know is what created that experiences and, and why did it turn out the way it did? And is what they're telling us the truth? Because it seems because of everything that they had had mentioned doesn't add up to what what's the facts it doesn't add up to the actual facts and the scene and to who a person is but we also like i said we acknowledge both sides we acknowledge it either being injustice or a crisis and i think that's where we always stood and we will go forward knowing the truth but missoula police department you have to be able to put transparency out there for not only hurting families, but for the community so that we can trust you, so that we can be in this space where we grow and learn together, not disconnected. Absolutely. And so I guess kind of like coming to a close here, for those who are listening here, especially in the Missoula community, what is, what is your final message to the people of this community? I know that you were saying before that you were a little upset that the story was kind of, you know, fading a little bit and that people weren't talking about it as much as they were, you know, like a month or so ago. What is your message to the people of our community in regards to what they should think about in regards to this story? You know, this process has taught me that we are 
going so far away from being disconnected to who we are as people, as human beings. We've gone away from that idea. And I've gotten an opportunity to speak at the city hall um, and in front of the courthouse. And I put it in a perspective that we need to start coming together as people, as, as human people, as human beings again, to know that we are more deeply connected than we actually think. To know that our differences should not create disconnections, but our differences should create spaces for inclusivity. And, sorry. I think that's like the overall message that my brother always gave me. And that's what I think this, the city of Missoula can start to do for each other is to recognize that through the things that is occurring, regardless of your political uh, views or your agendas, your office, or who you are, your status, that we all have an innate connection to one another. And we have to go forward and ask our systems of care to do better. We have to go forward and ask our police organizations to do better. And we have to be okay um, in acknowledging these things and know that if you feel indifferent about this acknowledgement that we can, can compromise and that if the city of Missoula can come to these set standards of living together in times that are difficult like now and can ask these things in a way that connects us and not disconnects us, then I could see change really occurring, not only within the city of Missoula, but within the state of Montana. And I think each and every one of, one of us as Montanans and, and you guys as Missoulians know the value of coming together, know the value of connection. And if we could do that same instance in terms of connecting to ask in a good way to these leaders within our institutions to look at viable restorative practices, to look at the injustices that have been occurred to primarily people of color and to build allyships within our Within, within our communities, bigger or smaller, that we start to go out and to create that difference and to continue to ask questions, not only for Brendan, but for the many others that have had encounters, police-involved shootings with the Missoula Police Department and the Missoula Sheriff's Department, to hold them accountable, to ask those questions as a community. Do we feel safe? under your watch or do only a certain people feel safe and how can we create that space to be all of us as humans as Missoulians and as Montanans how can we create that space together and I think it's the inclusivity that we can bring with each other and knowing that our indifferences create spaces for us to ask questions to fill our, our spaces with love and not negativity because that's the message my, my, that's the message my brother would have given is that we have to fill 
our deepest disconnections with love so we can build bridges to better opportunities, to better practices, to better crisis intervention, to better police organizations, to better, to better everything. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on to the podcast today, talking about this story, um, giving me a chance to talk to you not once, but twice now about your brother and about your family. I can't imagine what it's like to, you know, relive this and, you know, my condolences to you and your family. But I, I think what I want to do now is kind of more or less give a call to action to everyone who's listening to this, whether you're listening to it, you know, audio version or watching the video version, uh, you know, please share this video, please share this episode. I think that that is what's needed now is that we need more people to hear this story. We need more people to understand what happened and to hear the point of view that comes from the family versus what has been reported in the media. I, I know that also Terrence, that there is a, a GoFundMe link that your family has put up to cover things like you know, lawyer fees, the coroner's report, um, a scholarship in Brendan's name, uh, things of that nature. Can you tell everyone where they, you know, where they can go to find that? Yeah, I'll make sure to, to give you all the links. So there is a GoFundMe that was created uh, at the behest of a really an amazing organizer. She has really guided us and helped us, supported us, create the GoFundMe. And right away, it gained a lot of traction. So I'll make sure that we have that set up to where it is, 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 is for everyone. And they could find that either on my Instagram, which I'll make sure to have a link for you guys. And also to, um, to be prepared that we're looking to organize again. So that's something I think before, uh, and I'll say this like this, before the final edit, that before it really gets to it, um, you'll be able to put that out uh, when we, when we give, give the podcast that uh, we'll have a Missoula wide community, I guess, vigil or protest or coming together, all of it, where we acknowledge, where we get to ask questions and we get to come together in, in love and in, in, in connection to all the things that are occurring within the Missoula Police Department and all the people of color that have been hurt. So that's coming forward. So be looking out for that and I'll make sure to get that link. But for the GoFundMe, um, it'll be posted. Um, and yeah, you could. I, I just really appreciate if you guys supported because it goes, it went towards a lot of the funeral fees already, paid for a lot of the, the things that like the headstone, the casket, the burial site, along with uh, at one point was going to get a, a, an autopsy, second autopsy, while at the same time, uh, lawyer fees now, because I think the most important part about this process is making sure that we're getting quote unquote the best, someone that's gonna go up against the system that's gonna support what my brother, what my brother was looking for and what we're asking for uh, in terms of justice, in terms of seeking those answers. So those, and we had mentioned and our family had mentioned 
possibly setting up a, a scholarship in his name that could support other students of color looking to get off maybe reservations to going forward uh, to places like UCLA. Because those places like that, he, him and others are trailblazers in terms of, of an other Indigenous people going forward and looking at uh, getting off the reservation. So maybe setting up a scholarship in his name. Um, but at the same time, hopefully in the process of creating some sort of bill that could support all Montana police organizations in mental health training, crisis intervention training, and it could be the Brendan Galbraith Initiative. So these are things to be wary of and to be heads up on that we'd love the support. And I think if you guys could share this, get the word out, it'd be an amazing opportunity uh, to continue to speak on the behalf of my brother, to continue to tell his story so that way it gains that traction where we get answers because there's still people in Missoula seeking answers for their loved ones. And we see it throughout the, throughout the United States. So let's create a space where we get Brendan's name out there and we ask for these answers. Terrence, thank you again for coming onto the podcast today. Uh, to everyone who you know sat through this and listened to this entire episode, thank you for being here. And uh, again, please go ahead and share this episode so that more people can also hear this episode, see this episode. You know, um, finally, you know those links that were mentioned, they'll be in the episode description. Whether you're listening to this on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, uh, the links will be in the episode description. So just go ahead and go into the description now. And you will be able to see the links directly uh, to Terrence's Instagram and to the GoFundMe. And, you know, just again, you know, uh, to my local Missoulians, you know, let's come together and be a community here and just, you know, continue to keep this story alive. I think that is one of the things that we can do to honor, you know, Brendan's name and, and his, uh, and his story. So uh, thank you again for everyone for tuning into this episode. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.